those years, living the life of someone I didn't even know. Truck, wiggle out, jump, run, somebody. I'm scared. I know. The Boston priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would do. Spotlight. Banks have conditioned us to trust them. What have we got from that? 25% interest rates on credit cards. They have screwed us on student loans that we can never get out from under. I ain't too anxious to be handing out rides. Real trusting fella, huh? Not so much. Ain't no way I'm spending a couple of nights under a roof with somebody I don't know who they are. Oh God, my Lord, I now begin. Oh, help me and I'll leave my sin. For I repentant thou shall be. From evil I will turn to thee. They're coming for you. I'm not the one that needs to watch their back. This doesn't have to end in a fight, Tony. This guy here, that's the toughest opponent you're ever going to have to face. I believe that's true in the ring, and I think that's true in life. Just show me something. Hello, and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, Rob Daniel, editor of electric-shadows.com. And I'm pleased to say, as always, I am joined by Mr. Rob Wallace. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Uh, Rob Wallace, former editor of The Metropolist currently founder of of all the film sites which should be going live any day now fantastic when you say any day do you have a date that we should be looking for um probably by the i'm gonna say tentatively by the time this goes live by the time this uh, podcast goes out it should hopefully be uh, alive and available for viewing at www.ofallthefilmsites.com brilliant this will probably be going up on Saturday, the 18th of June. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it's not up, then I, I can wholeheartedly recommend that you go to Of All The Film Blogs, which is a very good blog, and that's the that's the current status of your that's, site. That's the it? proto of all the films. I mean, if you want, you can just go to www.ofallthefilmsites.com and just keep, keep clicking the refresh, because eventually yeah. something will appear. And it's all good clicks for your, for your Google Analytics. Indeed. So today, uh, we are going to be looking at the first half of 2016, as we're pretty much halfway through the year. It seemed like a good time to do a half-year review. One of the reasons for this is because, to be honest, this has been a bit of a bumper year for film, in my humble but quite correct opinion. Um, We have had things like Spotlight, which won the Best Picture Oscar this year. We've had Room, we've had The Hateful Eight, we've had Creed... This is literally scratching the surface of what I think has been a really good year for films. We've also had some absolute stinkers, which we'll get onto a bit later, um, and we'll give them a good kicking. So basically, if you want to give this one a name, it's the good, the bad, the middling of 2016. Rob, do you have a list of the things that are your top ten contenders for the year? Uh, yes, I have. I'm going to. I've got a long list of films I really, really liked. And I'm now going to pull something out of, let's say, the air. And, <laughs> um, so, yeah, in no particular order, though I may, I, I may commit to one later. I think you should do this the same way that you did it in rehearsal. 
when you went through all the films that you... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, all the films that I have seen so far this year in roughly ascending order. Uh, which and this we... is a year, a half year, very well spent, in my humble opinion, again. Well, thank you very much. We uh, we may need to edit this bit while I actually find the email in which I, which I sent to myself. Um, okay, in oh, in roughly ascending order. Angry Birds, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Night of Cups, Yakuza Apocalypse, Demolition, Jane Got a Gun, Joy, Mia Madre, Partisan, Truth, A War, Adult uh, Adult Life Skills, The Danish Girl, Deadpool, Eye in the Sky, Hail Caesar, High Rise, Midnight Special, Mon- Money Monster, Remainder, The Revenant, Sunset Song, Tale of Tales, Victoria, The Wave, X-Men Apocalypse, Ten Cloverfield Lane, Bone Tomahawk, Captain America Civil War, The Neon Demon, The Nice Guys, The Program, Trumbo, The Witch, Youth, Anomalisa, The Big Short, Creed, Everybody Wants Some, Green Room, The Hateful Eight, uh, Room, Son of Saul, and Spotlight. Very good. <laughs> wow, okay. I have. I don't think I've seen as many films as that. There are certainly not as many films that I've uh, jotted down that will be contenders for the top ten. But yeah, are you of the opinion as well that this has been a pretty good half a year so far? Yeah, I think I've, I've, I've had the... It's been slightly unusual coming up with the top ten this... Well, yeah, uh, for 2016, only in so far that so many of the films I saw last year... Yes. And I'm now sort of recalibrating and going, no, because they didn't go on general release. Oh, you know, the, 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 the troubles of, you know, the, the problems of reviewing films early, it's just, it really throws off your timings. The troubles of getting a press pass to the London Film Festival and blitzing some of the great films and then getting all those screeners come award season, it is, it is a bark. It is, it is a curse, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all part of the job and it's... It has to be done. Someone has to do it, and we are going to take that bullet for you. Well, if we kick off with uh, a film that pretty much started the year, um, and I thought was very good, The Hateful Eight. Yeah, The Hateful Eight. I, the, when I was sort of working on this list, such as it is, The Hateful Eight was one that sort of rose further, close to the top than I was thinking, than I was initially thinking. You know, it's a film that I was sort of going through the records, and, and when that popped up, I went, actually, Hateful Eight, yeah, that's a top ten. That's you know that might even be a top five because I'm remembering now how much how just how entertaining it was and how it holds up in the memory. Yeah, and it's um, it also has a a warm place in my heart because of course our first podcast was the Winter of the Western and a lot of it revolved around the Hateful Eight. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a good rich Western. Obviously, looks fantastic. Shot in seventy mil. Characters are very good. Uh, the dialogue's good. There is the argument that I think that we made before on the previous podcast that it's kind of reservoir dogs with horses, and aren't you doing the same thing that you were doing twenty years ago? And but I think we now have to admit that Tarantino is not going to mature in that way as a filmmaker. His no. films will always end with people in a Mexican standoff. I mean, yeah, at the very least, you could say there's always a sense of resolution. There's always a sense of resolution. Yeah, you're not left scratching your head as to who got away. Yeah, I thought but it was it was who killed Nice Guy Eddie, Rob? Who killed Nice Guy Eddie? Mister White. I, I thought I, it's Nice Guy Eddie in that. He, it's not because Mister White doesn't have his gun on Nice Guy Eddie. He shoots twice as he goes down. He shoots again. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone was always saying it, it was Mister Pink. It's like no, it's Mister White. But the, that's well, yeah. We're going off tangent and way back now. I can remember seeing uh, Reservoir Dogs in '92 and being yeah, absolutely blown away by it. I still think it's one of the great films perfect film in that there's not an ounce of fat on that film then this whole thing about who shot Nice Guy Eddie it's like uh, why is this even a topic of conversation it was Mr White he shoots him as he goes down he, sh- he shoots twice yeah anyway so yeah watch it again it's 
it is Mr. White. I say I think I think we had one film this year that had uh, the best um, bank robbery jewel heist outside of Reservoir Dogs, which was a uh, Victoria. Victoria, in that you didn't see it. Oh yes, indeed, that's right. Yeah, that was a a little nod, probably, and also. So Victoria was that film that was um, shot in one take. It's a German film shot in Berlin about a girl. Can't remember her name. Victoria. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> Joke. Uh, a mistake done for de- uh, <laughs> delivery done for comic effects. But um, <laughs> thank you for the trust there, Rob. <laughs> so she hooks up with some guys in like a wild evening, and they hit the clubs, etc. Ultimately, becomes embroiled with dinner in a bank robbery. The story is not anything special, but the way it's told is that it's all in one shot, in, isn't in it? In real time, yeah. In so. one take, it's all it's all in real time. I thought that was good. Couldn't quite see why the five star reviews were coming out, but uh, I thought it was a yeah, it was a good film. It it was good because of the way that it was made. If that film was made it any other way, it would be a very disposable, typical kind of yeah, late night on Channel Five or something like a yeah, throwaway crime movie. It also has the, the dubious honour of being the only film that's made me feel seasick because of all that handheld. Because we saw that at the NFF, didn't we? We did on like a um, on a on a Monday morning. Sorry, and about halfway through that film, my head was pounding and I just had such nausea. And it's like, wow, I don't know what's come over me. And I think the woman in front of her won't know what's come over her in a minute. <laughs> vomit. Let's be very... Sorry, let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's take a moment and just... <laughs> only be vomit. Um, but then that's the point where it all started to get into the crime aspect of it. And it's like, oh, it's getting really interesting again now. I don't want to leave to get some air because I'm actually quite involved in this story again now. And ultimately it all just passed, but yeah. And I, mean, I think that was voted on the electric, in the Electric Shadow Awards film most likely to make, make you need Dramamine. So that was, what, yes, what indeed, that's there? right. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was the, uh, yes. You need quells for that film. But yes, that was, uh, it was, yeah. Victoria, an interesting film, but that was oh, in, my, the, in, in my middling. It was, yeah, it's kind of... Uh, okay, let's, let's be disciplined about this now. Let's, yes, let's... indeed. Should we go into bad or should we have another good first? Well, let's have another good. Go on, yeah. Um, well, uh, Spotlight, of course, which uh, which I believe you uh, you opened this podcast by mentioning. Yep. Um, yeah, investigative journalism, all, uh, you know, about abuse in Boston by the Catholic Church. It's based on a true story yeah, of the. On... Yeah, I really like films about investigative journalism done well. Things like All the President's Men, obviously, is always the ultimate example of that. But um, yeah, Defense of the Realm, I think, is like another good version of that story where someone does some digging and soon finds that they're kind of uh, uncovering something quite phenomenal. And Spotlight, I just thought was a really, just a really brilliant piece of no-nonsense movie making. It was the the film equivalent of a really well-written piece of investigative journalism, I thought. I it's very quiet and unassuming. It, you know, it, it does have the real sort of um, heart-hitting emotional stuff just you know purely because it's unavoidable given what it, given what it's about and it's sold incredibly well by uh, you know, Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, and Rachel McAdams. And, and Rachel McAdams. But it's also it it strikes a real balance which I've just realized is a phrase that I use repeatedly. <laughs> but it does. Um in yeah in fi- in finding a way to keep an objective eye on the facts while conveying the sheer, you know, the, the trauma that was inflicted on, on, you know, countless people. Yeah. And, and then, you know, there's just something the statistic that, you know, 
somebody a guy called Sipes I think it was ran the numbers in you know on number of uh, paedophile priests that he believed were in, were in a certain area from which you could extrapolate the likely number which is something like you know they 70 within the Archdiocese of Boston I think it was I think it was around around 90 or something really was it, it, was it was yeah, it's, uh, and the story of Spotlight as I'm yeah sure lots of our listeners know is about the uh, so the Boston Globe in the 2000 time I think it was um, uncovered a long history of child abuse by Catholic priests and of course you know, Boston is a very very Catholic city and the church is, is really a part of everyday life and it's it's in every single part it's in the schools it's in you know, the police stations it's in the city hall and you always seem to be within shouting distance of one of a church yeah that's one of the really nice visual motifs of, of the film is that there's always a church in the background it's just omnipresent there's and they're always next to playgrounds and things like that it's just this really nice quite subtle but chilling visual touch that the film has and it could have been you know real tub thumping but it could it yeah lets the story tell itself in terms of that there's uh there's no real speechifying other than the yeah, Mark Ruffalo moment when when his character almost has a breakdown because of the because they might lose the story and which always got played on at the award ceremonies and always got played on like yeah, the talk shows and things like that but within the framework of the film it's, it's completely justified that moment it, it doesn't seem to stand out as a sore thumb against anything else I thought yeah I thought that was an absolutely smashing film another thing I really liked about it is uh, how those involved took their licks for for investigative failures mm. for you know we, we didn't do the 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 best job we could have done that you know things things were missed things were overlooked and on on my on the middling list is a film called Truth yes which, is that this year uh, I I don't know now that you've now you've said that you've got me doubting well, should we pause it a moment and figure out whether whether well, we are um, we are leading our our listeners down a uh, well even if it, it even if it wasn't it's a very good comparison film so do you want to say why you uh, why you were thinking truth this is, the... is about the CBS report uh, into uh, George W Bush and whether or not he went AWOL from the Texas Rangers and avoided service and, in and, Vietnam. and avoided service in Vietnam and the uh, the out cry that resulted when that was proven that the facts of the case were, were thrown into doubt and that uh, truth uh, which stars Kate Blanchett among other people it's, um, also uh, Robert Redford as Dan Rather Dan Rather Dan Rather yes Dan Rather. he's the uh the head. kind of the Jeremy Paxman of um, of American news, wasn't he? He was, he was beloved elder, elder statesman. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, Dennis Quaid's in the film. Um, uh, Topher Grace. Yeah, uh, Moss. Oh, what's her name? Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. Um, and it's a film that presents the reason for their failure. The, the fa- their failures in reporting as being entirely down, you know, there was a conspiracy against them, or you know, that oh, the public didn't want to hear that, weren't you know, weren't ready to hear the truth, as opposed to we fucked up, mere culpa, you know, because it does look like a a case. It does seem when all the facts are in, well, all the facts of this case, as opposed to the, the case within, uh, that it was a case of shoddy of shoddy journalism and in truth or in, in truth, yeah. and that it, and that you know the mm. the story was forced out into the open at a point where it really wasn't ready to you know to to be revealed see i kind of disagree with that and i thought that the film did i thought the film was quite good in that it they rushed to meet a deadline because 
they couldn't because I think that Kate Blanchett's character says all we need to you know, have this day and it's like well Dr. Phil is booked in for that day and we can't move Dr. Phil and this is like clearly a much more important story because at the time George Bush was was campaigning as a war president he was a very hawkish gung-ho president but in all likelihood he did have some strings pulled for him to avoid service in Vietnam but the Kate Blanchett character makes the call to run the story earlier and so therefore they have to cut corners on the fact checking which i don't i just don't feel like there that was always presented as uh, coming from necessity being born of you know uh, being born of factors over which they had no control and there was never a really a sense of we shouldn't have done that we should just have said no that was on us to say no and not to run it then as in it was always sort of blamed on the our CBS, the, you know, the corporate bastards, as opposed to, no, we, we, we are a group of professional adults who had a responsibility to tell this story right, and we did, and we, and we chose the easy way. I know what you mean, I do know what you mean. I, I thought there was, that was in the film, I think, yeah, they might have gone on, on it a lot more and actually got some more mileage out of the, that she rushed to meet a deadline because, one, because of her pride and her hubris but also because yeah, she wasn't given the space to do it and there is more interesting thing to put in there than was in the film eventually I think the element of that was in there but Spotlight I thought well just handled the whole the whole world of journalism a lot better particularly the the fact that this has been going on for decades and and the press was as in a way as culpable as the as the police in terms of covering it up because because it was right under their nose and they never to investigate and yes indeed like kind of a fear to investigate it kind of suggests that you have to have the outsider the Liv Schreiber character who's the new editor and I did like the underlying anti-Semitism that the very Catholic city and also the obviously very Catholic um, archdiocese kind of has against him because he's Jewish because he's an outsider and I thought that his character was very interesting in terms of saying this is an amazing story that we have here. Should you guys not be doing this? Because, and who cares if you yeah, ruffle some feathers? Because if this is true, then we have to be looking at this. See, I it was a really, really clever piece of filmmaking. I thought. But while we're on a based on a true story, Jag, I'm going to go on to my next good possible top ten contender for the year, Trumbo. Yes, Trumbo. I uh, I recently heard. And interesting, I think it may have been on another podcast. The Trumbo, I, which I which I love as a film, and I and I think you know it feeds really. It deals with some serious sort of historical injustices, but while being an incredibly well acted, fundamentally feel good sort of work of entertainment. Yeah, it's um, so Trumbo. Quick plot synopsis is based on the. McCarthy witch hunts of the 1940s and 50s and actually it says in the film kind of went, it went up to the early 70s which I didn't actually know but they were at their height in the 1940s and 50s when the House of Un-American Activities Committee who were basically commie witch hunters went after actors, writers, directors you know, Hollywood folk who they saw as um, left-leaning red liberals who were going to sneak in a communist message into popular entertainment Trumbo, he was the figurehead of this, wasn't he? I think because he was the the most chatty and yeah, the most loquacious, and also the most successful in terms of being a um, a very very highly paid scriptwriter. And yeah, I thought it was a. Uh, it's it's directed by Jay Roach, who did the Austin Powers films, um, and it is shot in that very 
yeah, colourful, high key lighting way that um, yeah, so it kind of looks like Breakfast at Tiffany's, or it, you know, it looks like a film from that era. There's that um, glow to it. Yeah, yeah, it, yes, indeed, it has that glow to it. Also, has lots of very noirish plumes of smoke because, of course, Trumbo was a chain smoker. But it's set during the fifties, and they're all chain smokers. It, but it just looks cool when you have all these swirls of smoke going around typewriters and stuff. But um, I mean, it's, again, it's obviously a film that plays loose with some of the facts and yeah, certainly with the timeline that it all happened in. It could, it does tend to move stuff around or, or things have happened that are better served in the story by happening here when actually they happened, you know, happened earlier. Yeah. I, I, you know, one of the things is that I've, I've heard, and I, and I will need to dig up some sources to verify, dig up the sources to verify this, is that a lot of the writers who were accused of being communists, you know, the film kind of soft pedals that whole thing, and it has them talk about, you know, we're Americans, but a lot of them were sort of died in the wall Stalinists, and the film, and I, 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 I do wish there had been a moment in the film where they'd gone, it doesn't actually matter, you know, I, 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 yes, I'm, yes, I am a died in the wall communist, and maybe my beliefs are a little bit sketchy based on what we now know. But the fundamental thing is you don't have the right to do... I'm not entirely sure that at that time they did know. I mean, was it before... So so by the end of the film, obviously, yeah, the Berlin Wall has gone up. And But the beginning of the film was in the early 50s. And I think there was a, a disbelief about a lot of the things that were coming out of communist Russia that, that lots of American communists thought it was just anti-red propaganda by the conservative government. I think there was also like an idealism to the idea of communism being, you know, the great utopia. Um, Which is why, you know, arguably it appealed to so many writers, people who spend a lot of time in their in their in their heads. Yes, indeed. Like, uh, but what I really liked about the film as well was that it yeah, it's not afraid to portray Trumbo as a character who likes his socialism with a big glass of champagne next to it. He's always talking about like yeah, the collective and the common good and making sure that every yeah that everyone's treated fairly. But he does enjoy his own private lake on his own private estate and has the trappings of fame so he is yes everyone is equal but he is definitely more equal than others in that film and it's a very red-blooded performance from Brian Cranston there's a lot of energy into it I think in my review I describe him as essentially the human equivalent of Foghorn Leghorn yes he is the human equivalent of Foghorn Leghorn but but crucially he is also quite witty with it there's um, there's a there's a really good scene with where Trumbo faces off against John Wayne. You know, John Wayne, of course, being the... Well, I'm not entirely sure. I never... I'm not sure if anyone ever asked him in an interview about this, but this... But John Wayne was someone who actively avoided serving in World War II. His you know, good friend, the director John Ford, would often rib him over telegrams, saying, when are you going to get you know, joined in? You know, when are you going to join in with a fight? You know, when are you going to jump in? Because John Ford, of course, was off embedded with troops, like, yeah, making uh, newsreels and things like that. Yeah, Frank Capra was doing the same. James Stewart, who acted with John Wayne in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is one of the great movies, was, yeah, flying daylight raids over Berlin. So, yeah, some of the most dangerous missions of the war. Yeah, John Wayne was, as they say in the film, in that great scene when Trumbo says I was over there and yeah so and so was off in Iwo Jima and where were you oh yeah you were fighting the war from a soundstage wearing makeup it's like yeah he did he, yeah John Wayne did do that but then he appeared in these films winning World War 2 over and over again and I still how can you how can you live with spent, yourself <laughs> and spent so I well, spent a lot of time uh, visiting the troops in Vietnam when that conflict kicked off and... yeah and, and he made the green berets which was a film that notoriously was supportive of the war in Vietnam 
end has that infamous ending where John Wayne as the I don't know, the major or colonel or whatever is playing kind of uh, says to the little Vietnamese boy you're what this is all about then they walk off to the sun which is setting in the east um, and it's, <laughs> it's just wrong on every single level um, but not, not, the, not the most infamous ending of a John Wayne film I think what's that one? Uh, greatest Story Ever Told oh yes indeed yeah, which actually is an, it's, it's a film that he steals doesn't he with his uh Truly, this man was the son of God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, John Wayne. But he he did have screen presence. I mean, it is a great performance he gives in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and True Grit. Again, it's one of those... The Searchers, which is a really, really problematic film now. I mean, yeah, The Searchers is one of those films that... It is racist. It's just a racist movie. and But it's also... Yeah, it's it's weird. It's kind of... Yeah, so these are the films that you'd grow up with Scorsese talking about what a great film The Searchers was and it's like well I said yeah is it racist yes. it was made it's, at a time when this would not have been seen as racist naturally yeah the ending and his the change of his he character becomes less racist he becomes less racist he becomes forgiving of the fact that she has lived as a as an Indian for uh, for all these years and as oh my god yeah maybe even had sex with an Indian um, and he doesn't want to kill her anymore this is his niece he's been searching for all these years um, and that might at the time we've seen it but, you know, it's been quite progressive of course now it doesn't it, it all seems quite problematic but John Wayne like yeah, Mel Gibson just has great screen presence and it's like well you can do your job but anyway I thought his character in Trumbo was very good um, and Trumbo yeah I just had a really good time with that film it was a really enjoyable look at uh, it's still quite a shocking era where it's just because they were being accused of thought crime, basically. It's, uh, yeah, you're just thinking with, in the wrong with way. With no basis in law. With no basis in law, yeah. And and the fact that they were communists is like, well... Is it, yeah, it's ultimately... It yeah, exactly. It's Oh, and another film to tackle the uh, the, the Red Menace yeah. that I, uh, I believe our opinions may differ on ever so slightly Go on. Uh, is, of course, Hail Caesar. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, let's get on to one of the middling ones, shall we? So, tell me about Hail Caesar. In terms of plot? Or? Quick bit of plot and then, uh, and then okay. what you thought Hail about. Caesar is, uh, follows a sort of a day in the life, or a couple of days, in the life of Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Brolin, a studio fixer who has to cont- who works for the fictional... Oh, what's it called? Something Studios. Capital or something? Capital Studios. And has to contend with a whole host of issues, including gossip columnists played by, well, twin gossip columnists, both played by Tilda Swinton, and sort of lunk-headed stars, one played by uh, George Clooney, another star who's sort of an, an Ethel Williams water musical, played by you know um, Starlet, played by Scarlett Johansson, and uh, yeah, it's essentially rather in- difficult directors. Essayed by Ray Fiennes, (laughs) and is essentially just a fairly loose, fanciful, yeah, as day in the life, uh, trials and tribulations of, uh, as directed by the Coen Brothers. Yeah, and yeah, I won't say what I thought about it yet. What did you think of it? A lot of fun in terms of its recreating various different genres in the Golden Age of Hollywood, like the Water Musical. Like it's got um. Channing Tatum as Gene Kelly yep. doing essentially a, a spoof of On the Town with uh, the homoeroticism 
amped way up. Amped way, way up. And um, It's like a Gene Kelly alike, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, there ain't going to be no dames. There ain't going to be no dames. All these uh, soldiers dancing and doing some quite Kama Sutra-like dance moves, aren't they? Yes. Um, there is quite a lot of thrusting. It did, and lots of holding legs and things like that. But... Um, and it's, yeah. it's very disposable. And there, there is a whole, there's a whole subplot about uh, the character of Baird Whitlock, who's uh, the matinee idol played by George Clooney being kidnapped by what turns out to be a uh, a cadre of communists. A, uh, it's, it's almost like a writing group, because they are all implied to be screenwriters, and who discuss with him, you know, the division of labour and, you know, Heideggerian principles, and it's... Owning the tools of trade or industry, yeah, yeah, yeah indeed, yeah. It's um, and it's very lightweight and intermittently very funny, and it feels it might be the Coen Brothers' most disposable film, and that's you know saying something. Given that you know they also have done Intolerable Cruelty and Burn After Reading and the Lady Killers remake, though it's, <laughs> it's, your, it's just it's your turn to step in on that one, Mark. Yeah, because... So basically. With... So Hail Caesar, I was thinking, hmm, good, bad, middling. Certainly not good. After I saw it, I thought it was yeah, middling. Now I think it might be bad. And the reason for that is you hit the nail on the head when you said it was disposable. This is a disposable movie. I mean, I, I have no idea why the Coens thought, yeah, that's the next story we want to tell. Because there is literally nothing to this. And again, um... I'm just going to nick all of your great lines. When you first saw the film, you said the stakes were so low in that film that there was almost no... There was, well, yeah, there was no drama to it. And there's there's almost nothing to hold on to. It's just a series of vignettes that, yeah, some are quite funny. I mean, I thought that the Channing Tatum one, again, is, is there nothing that Channing Tatum cannot do? He seems to be doing a lot of his own dancing in it. It was funny... The Ray Fine scene was funny when he's trying to direct the uh, the cowboy you know, matinee idol who they're trying to direct him with a English accent. But of would course, that it, it were so simple? Yes, and it's, yeah, and it's literally would that it were so simple? And they get a lot of laughs from that. But ultimately, it's like, what is the point of any of this? It seemed to me like, um, and then you have people like Jonah Hill who, who pop up for a scene and then they're gone, and lots of there are lots of scenes where. A character appears for a scene and then they're gone, or a couple of scenes and they're gone. And to me, I just thought this this just seems like a five part miniseries that has been cut down into an hour and forty five minute movie. And each week, the only constant would have been the Josh Brolin character having to fix different problems. So one week it would have been the Scarlett Johansson character, the next week it would have been the George Clooney character. We're just getting the best of moments from those stories you put into an hour and forty five minute film, but. Obviously, with none of the other story, this means nothing. And that isn't the case. This was always just a film, but it just seems so much like it had been cut down from a much longer thing. And, yeah, it was just... I just... At the time, it was like, yeah, that had some quite good stuff in it. And But now I just think it just annoys me that they made it because it's like, well, you guys have made some of the great movies. You have a lot of five-star movies under your belt. Include it, and you've made some some great recent movies um true grit it's a great movie i loved inside lewin davis as did everyone else apart from me i just couldn't it just seemed it again that film had no surprises for me hail caesar in a way surprised me more than inside lewin davis even though inside lewin davis is just by far the better film but it just seemed like i knew exactly what inside lewin davis was going to be but yeah 
I just don't know oh, I knew why exactly they did. What True Grip was going to be. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yes. But did you though? Did you though? Because <laughs> you knew it was going to be a remake, and that it was sort of close to one of that. But did, but the way it was told, just the wonderful dialogue in that film. Anyway, it's brilliant. Um, it set uh, Jeff Bridges up for the performance that he's been giving since then. Yes, it really did, didn't it? He just hit his. That was his Christopher Walken moment, wasn't it? It's like, yeah, I, I think I've found my register for the rest of my career now. <laughs> <laughs> and what's that, Lassie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so Hail Caesar was... Um, uh, we'll see what they do next, but come on, guys. So that's kind of... Actually, that was one of my bads, so... Is it time yet to go into a bad, or shall we tease it? Shall we make them wait and do another good? Let's do another good. Let's focus on the positive. Let's focus on the positive first. So to continue the um, based on a true story theme that we seem to have stumbled on, apart from the Hateful Eight, with our goods, do you have any based on true story goods? Um, I'm sure I must do. <laughs> uh, oh, the Big Short. The Big Short, yes. that's uh, That is possibly, if not, if not the firm favourite, at least a strong contender for my favourite film of the year so far. Uh, the Big Short, of course, detailing the recent collapse of the housing market and the incredibly complex and labyrinthine series of financial miscalculations on a sort of a global scale, certainly on a, on a, a scale of Wall Street, that led to that as seen through a handful of individuals who essentially predicted that the uh, the bottom was going to fall out and managed to short or essentially um, do I need to explain what the, what the short is? I don't. I'm going to stop you there what you've described is a very accurate representation of the film to which everyone would think why would everyone want to watch that? Because it manages to illuminate all the all the complexity in an incredibly entertaining actually quite moving way in uh, using these using these different figures, one played by Christian Bale, a guy called Michael Berry, uh, a, a real life real life guy, glass eye, possibly autistic, uh, starts looking at the numbers behind mortgages, behind these things called CDOs, which essentially are big bundles of mortgages. I won't go into any further than that, and realizing that housing the housing market, the houses behind them, the mortgages are defaulting. You know, people aren't paying them, therefore these things can't be stable. They can't be worth the money that people are shelling out to to invest in them. And that was the point, wasn't it, that there were all these mortgages were being consolidated into one not very manageable monthly debt, and banks were buying these, but it was toxic. It was a toxic investment. They were never going to see the money from this. Because the essentially the rate of repayment, uh, uh, the interest had been had been structured in such a way that you got a teaser rate for about two years, yeah, and then that leapt up. And as soon as it leapt up, everyone was going to start defaulting and missing payments. And uh, it's him, and it's uh, Steve Carell, and it's Ryan Gosling, and they play this really sort of intriguing bunch. Again, all based at least loosely on real-life people. And it's a film that has cutaways to Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain CDOs, or Anthony Bourdain to explain you know, how, how CDOs are recombined, and they, they take all the parts that are essentially rubbish, the things that drag it down, and, and recombine them in such a way that that scene is a whole new shiny new thing instead yeah. of just the offcuts. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good food metaphor he has because he's like a super chef, isn't he? And he kind of, uh, yeah, basically says, "I just take all the offal and I put it into this big pot, and I sell it as something new and exciting and something as 
you know, it's like a delicacy, but it's actually just all the offcuts from this stuff, and uh, I'm basically selling you crap. Um, Selena Gomez in it as well, isn't she? And she explains something, and uh, I yes, can't I think she's explaining. Well, I think it might be synthetic CDOs of how right. essentially it's, it's inc- so incredibly complex. Obviously, there's a whole there's an, there's an industry of thousands of professionals who do this as a full time thing, and it's made to be obscure because obviously they are financial experts and you know part of being an expert in an industry like that is the illusion that only you that you hold the key and that you well one that you are completely okay to self-regulate which of course turned out to be utterly wrong obviously um banks it turns out should be very strictly regulated because they can't be trusted to regulate themselves because it is because one of the things that i really like about big short and and you're description of why you should watch this film is absolutely spot on it's it is a it takes something that you think god this is so mind-numbingly dull and really complex and turns it into something that actually is a very human story and a real tragedy but also like a real black comedy it's it's almost like dr strange love in a way because they're all because they keep talking about betting against primes and betting against the triple a rating of mortgages i.e those in mortgages that are so um, secure that if you were to bet against it, then you would get big odds on it, basically. And the way they talk about it is like, well, yeah, this is all just a big, a big crapshoot. This is just, this is just gambling. This is the whole economy is based on really just gambling. And then the fact that they all have their you know, massive annual conference in Vegas and. It again it's, is just yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah and the, uh, the, the last days of Rome. Yeah, so. and, it's, and it's all just so venal, and everyone, even those that know that the collapse is coming, don't care about it because they're making so much money that it's like, well, I'm going to be fine, and there's no such thing as community, and all these things came through. I thought it was really good. Uh, yeah, essentially, after the initial investment, it's all just layers of insurance. Yeah, it's your, even if you do, even if it's not you who've invested, you're taking out insurance that says if that person's investment fails, I get this amount of money, and then it's somebody taking out insurance to say, well, if their if their bet doesn't pay off, then I get paid. Yeah, and the person below that going, well, if their bet doesn't pay off, I get paid, and it just it just snowballs until you know your your little house in in the Florida suburbs that's that's you know you're paying thirty grand a year. Uh, you know, has a million dollars riding on it. Yeah, in in a series of different bets, as part of a much larger. And the film makes that make sense, and it manages that all while being, you know, again returning to both sort of entertaining and moving. There's a really good subplot when they when Steve Carell's guys go down to, I think it is Florida, um, just to investigate some of the some of the mortgages that have been held in these CDOs and they discover that half the houses are empty that people have uh, either they own lots of different properties which they can't afford or they've fled or they've taken out a mortgage in the name of their dog yes indeed or they've taken out a mortgage in the name of their dog and and they're, and they're interviewing strippers aren't they kind of like who've just been you know, duped into buying cash rich as yeah. you said for the first couple of years they're going to be fine and yeah, it was a film that I watched and thought, this is really good. Um, to be honest, at the beginning I was a little bit mm about this, because it opens with that quite long speech from Christian Bale to camera. Oh, and Ryan Gosling? No, 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 it's, um, because the Ryan Gosling one I thought was pretty good, but then there's that scene with Christian Bale when he's sitting there sort of like you know, playing the drums, or like you know, playing with his drumsticks and stuff, and it goes on for ages. 
And it's and I found that really, really difficult to get into. In the first 10 minutes, I was thinking, am I going to turn this off and watch something else? I'm not sure. I'm really, really glad that I stuck with it. It turned out to be a really smart film. And uh, But I thought, yeah, it's great that yeah, the guy's in this, you know, Brad Pitt, I think it was made through his Plan B company. So he's bankrolled this to the you know, tune of $27 million. You're going to see a, a tiny fraction of that back in returns because no one's going to see this film. It's just too too dense. I was completely wrong with that. That film made something like $60 million in the US alone, and I just couldn't believe that it, it did so well. And But I'm really glad that it did, because it it's a film that needs to be seen. I think it's one of those films that people can go can feel good about going to see. Yes. And the fact that it's getting good reviews, and it's got a recognisable cast. It did really well at Oscar time in terms of nominations. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it got... Um, Best Supporting Actor, but possibly two Best Supporting. Might have been at the Golden Globes. I think at the Golden Globe it got a handful of Best Supporting. Was for that for Best Picture at the Oscars? One, I think, and Best Director. Yes, and uh, which, Best Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, yeah, really, a really smart film. We've teased them long enough. Shall we talk about one of our bad movies? How about another film that stars Christian Bale? I was thinking, should we save that one? Okay, because <laughs> he can't open with a showstopper. <laughs> And that's a real showstopper. So shall we talk about just a just a quick one to get it out of the way, but a film that um, that I was kind of looking forward to because I really like the director. You, I think, came to it with an open mind, and mm. we both walked out going, "Oh dearie me!" Yakuza Apocalypse, which is by the director of Audition and Itchy the Killer, and the Happiness of the Categories, Takashi Miike, who in my opinion was one of the great Japanese directors and I think now this guy's made about 80 movies or something he clearly now just I don't know he just seems to toss them out and there's a level of quality that was in his early work that's not there in in this work I just think he he just seems bored by the whole thing now and yeah he keeps still making these movies he's an interesting director in terms of that but uh, Yakuza Apocalypse which is it's basically a vampire Yakuza story. The trailer looked really good. The idea was really good. This guy's made one of the great Yakuza movies with Ichi the Killer. He's also made, um, actually he's made a number of the great Yakuza movies because Shinjuku Triad Society, that's a really good movie. The Dead or Alive movies are really fantastic as well. But Ichi the Killer I think is um, is a masterpiece. It's, a, it's an extreme masterpiece but a masterpiece nonetheless. Yakuza Apocalypse not so much a masterpiece it's such a mixed bag it's got so many different homages and influences contained in a plot that is essentially nonsense I mean there's a scene in it there's a scene that involves a, uh, a kappa one of the uh, the foul smelling beak mouth turtle headed goblin of Japanese myth and um, there's a scene where the kappa hands a man in a giant frog suit a baseball bat so he can beat to death a knitting circle of former Yakuza bosses and he only gives him that bat in order to prevent him from psychically eye-fucking a guy wearing a ruff to death. See, that should be amazing. (laughs) That should be. Because we also saw another film that's getting... Because we saw this at the LFF. We also saw another Japanese film at the LFF which is getting a straight-to-DVD release soon, which is a bit of a shame because I think it should be put up on a big screen for everyone. But actually, I think this will be one of my films of the year as well, which was Love and Peace. Love and Peace being a 
has a really, really catchy theme tune that it's an earworm. You would just be singing it over and over again. But um, we can't release that on there. We can't release it on, on here. It is literally like sending out the Ebola virus. But it's a nice Ebola virus, anyway. Love and Peace is a. Um, it's about like a David Bowie-like rock star who becomes a David Bowie-like rock star because of a turtle that he gets that gives him good luck, and he flashes down the toilet, and it becomes a. Uh, it then falls in with this inventor who lives in the sewer with all of his toys that have come to life. Like a slightly down on his luck sort of Santa's grotto. Yeah, he becomes, and it's all set at Christmas, isn't it? And he becomes a, and he gives what he thinks is the talking spell to this turtle but it's actually the wishing spell so then when this guy when his owner yeah, starts wishing for things the turtle it, begins uh, to grant the wishes but it gets bigger so it also becomes a monster movie there's a talking dinosaur in this movie it's uh, it's also a very very sweet love story about um, people kind of compromising or or finding happiness in their compromised lives so there's lots of great things going on in this film and I just thought it was absolutely splendid and Yaku's Apocalypse is just as mad and wild but just tiresome isn't it it just it really just got on my nerves after a while yeah because there's nothing holding it together yeah yeah there's yeah that's it there is nothing holding it together it is it's just a boring film but well done you for uh, for being dragged along by me and then watching yes. it and you having to apologize profusely for it uh, i was uh well the film that i uh that i went to see uh that i chose love and peace over was of course room Room. <laughs> so Rob, th- and that was a pretty. I had to say, yeah, I love going to the LFF. Yeah, getting the press pass the LFF, and love going to all the screenings of the LFF. I have to say, this year there were some pretty egregious clashes. Victoria clashed with Deepan, so we missed Deepan because we had to see Victoria. Yeah, and there were like a, a couple of really important films that clashed with other films. But yeah, you came along to see Love and Peace with me, which is a very you know wild Japanese movie, and then. All of our friends walked out of the room and were saying that was the best film of the year. Yeah, that was the best film of the year. Masterpiece, like, masterpiece. Some of them were sort of like almost in tears. Yeah. And can, it's you, like, can you imagine not having been in that room? <laughs> it's like, could you imagine of having the opportunity to go and see that and then not seeing it? And they were, I was sitting there going, "Well, I wouldn't have had a talking dinosaur in it," um, and it was lovely. Love, um, no. <laughs> at the end of this podcast, I will get a little sample of that song and put it on it's going to unleash it I'm going to unleash it on the world I'm like uh, David Morse in 12 Monkeys Morse it's um, David Morse it's David Morse well actually Room I think starts off quite a nice little sub-genre of our potential top 10s that definitely are goods of single location movies yeah there are a few really great ones this year there are but Room I mean yeah so you've seen Room now yeah yes yeah, yeah indeed and I, I saw it as well and yeah really good yeah, like incredibly, this sense of microcosm that this child that's been brought up in a room and raised by his mum, who's being held captive, and he, it's, it's 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 evident that he is the child of rape. Yeah, that he was. Yeah, she was. She did not have a child when she was first in this room. It was uh, that comes through, and it's a very well done film in terms of well. One, I would say, if you haven't seen the film, then don't watch the trailer, because the trailer gives everything away. And you should not really have anything given away in this film, even though I did watch the trailer, and there are certain points where I knew what was going to happen because I'd seen the trailer, but I was still literally sitting on the edge of my seat because I was so tense, which I think is a sign of a great film. But yeah, you're right, the the sense of the world that's 
has been created that they basically live in planet room and there's nothing on the outside of room other than just the vast expanse of space and that's how she keeps her little boy kind of in a way sane by yeah, protecting him from what's happening because and also herself as well I suppose yeah, she's having to create this fantasy world to protect herself as well because yeah this is literally all, all there is was was really well done. And yeah, it features an Oscar winning um, performance by Brie Larson. Indeed. And the Oscar nominated by. The... No, Jacob Tremblay was overlooked. Oh, was the, he? the, the, oh, the child right. in it who must have been. Well, he's meant to be about five in it. And I think it was about six or seven when they. When I they... think he might have been about eight or something like that. He was, he was, he was a few years older than his, his character. But he gave a superlative performance but I think it would be really interesting to watch a documentary about Room and the making of Room because you're thinking well you are too young to really get into the emotion of this character and the enormity of like you know the of the horror of what's happening therefore I would like to see how he was directed by Lenny Abramson who also did the film Frank which I thought was good but not as good as Room and also how much Brie Larson was involved in getting that performance uh, as well. Yeah, because she did previously done Short Term 12. Yes, that's right, yeah. And yeah, just her ability to capture the desperation of this woman who's being forced to put a brave face on it every single day with this child that she loves, you know, in her very bones in this place that's full of so much despair for her. And, yeah, continuing horror. Um, there's also, and because it's it's kind of told, well, it's told through voiceover through the little boy. So he he narrates things and talks about things and you see the kind of, the reality behind what he's saying um, because he doesn't realise some of it. And there are, so he talks about when mum's having one of her quiet days or something and you can see that she's just lapsed into a catatonic depression or something like that. And then when she talks about things that have happened in the past and she talks about it in a very, very matter-of-fact way, there's like an escape attempt that she talks about and it goes wrong and she says, and that's why mum's wrist always hurts now and you can see that there's been this really horrible thing that's happened. Yeah, I just thought it was actually fantastic. And it, and it does go off into other really, really interesting directions as well. Um yeah, so that's yeah definitely going to be up there as a contender. And moving on to, in a way, a similar themed film, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which has parallels with Room, but obviously is ultimately a very, very different treatment. Um, yeah, and it's about being held in a place by, again, by a, woman, a young woman being held in a place by a man, but with the added ambivalence of maybe this is the best place yeah. that she can, you know, maybe this, maybe everything else is worse. Maybe the, yes, indeed, yeah, maybe the the story that this man is saying, that, that basically the, you know, the world has ended and there is a, a disease or something seems to be out there that could kill you if you leave the bunker could be true. And that's what I liked about it. I thought the film was interesting because even though it's called Cloverfield, and again, I avoided all of the trailers, and you should really avoid the trailers, I thought, well, I've seen Cloverfield, the original film, which is the wonderful monster movie, which was in my top ten of the year that year. And thinking, but this could be a this could be a Cloverfield film that isn't a continuation of that. It's just a brand, maybe, that yeah, an umbrella that they putting this story under there was like a real and a doubt to whether this was all happening or not which I thought was really interesting 
it does resolve itself by the end, but uh, in, almost a bit disappointingly. Yeah, it's, well, I think it kind of gives it gives the audience a a big ending. Yeah, um, not to spoil it, but it, but there is that kind of yeah, there is a big ending to this film. Yeah, uh, and that's the thing because the rest of the film is so claustrophobic, and is so it's about uh, this character played by Elizabeth Mary Winstead being essentially Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Yes, Mary, Mary say Elizabeth. Three names is Edith yeah, Winstead. Edith um, Winstead, um, who's been off the screen for a while, and I thought was very good in this. She was. I, I today I watched. I saw her in Die Hard Four. Oh yes, indeed. Yeah, that, she which plays, was uh, John McClane. Uh, she plays John McClane's daughter. That's right. Yes, it's. Um, she was also in another really good film that I saw at Fright Fest a few years ago, and I can't think what it was called. But she played someone who would been broken out of a cult by her parents and was having to be deprogrammed by faults, that's what it was called uh, was having to be deprogrammed by Leland Orser and Leland Orser is the actor who is the is one of the lust victims from Seven who has to wear that thing in Seven so when you're being deprogrammed by Leland Orser who's quite a twitchy actor you know that this is going to be quite a, uh, a mind scramble of a film, and it is a bit of a mind scramble of a film. But, um, but yeah, I think I like Mary Elizabeth Winter. I think she's a, an underrated actress, and it was good to see her basically leading this film against John Goodman, who who was very good, um, suitably monstrous, indeed. And what was the name of the other guy? Oh, um, oh, he's in the newsroom. He's he's recently did a horror film called Hush. John, uh, John Gallagher. Gallagher. John Gallagher Jr. And yeah, it was a good a good three-hander. I mean, it's um it was not what I expected it to be. I had avoided all the all the trailers and thought this is this is not the film that I thought it was going to be, but it's actually better than what I thought it was going to be. Like yeah, it was a, yeah, if it's yeah, it's less yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, I think I think that the tagline does say something to this effect, you know, yeah, the, this time the monsters are on the inside or something, you know, it's something equally <laughs> Something, yeah, to the point. Like, he should have uh, see my tagline for it, which was my whorish Twitter quote for my review was um, "Suspense has a new address." Uh... <laughs> you can have that one. <laughs> okay, so uh, ending our, I think ending our uh, our single location. No, actually, no, there's I think no, there, is, there is another one. Well, I'm gonna should we talk about Green Room? Yes, we shall. So Green Room, yeah, is. Just one of the best thrillers of the year. It's a film that's really stayed with me. But um, okay, basic premise. Would you like to? The basic premise is a very low rent touring thrash punk band called the Nasty Bits. They are basically are they called the Nasty Bits? Well, they were called the Nasty Bits because that's the band in vinyl. They weren't called the Nasty Bits. They were called the Something Bits. Or well, they weren't called the Nasty Bits. You're right. They weren't called the Nasty Bits. Um, <laughs> Let's just quickly look up what they were called. The Ain't Rights. The Ain't Rights. Exactly what it is. <laughs> okay, so so Green Room. Uh, so the so the plot of Green Room is that a, uh, a touring low rent punk band called the Ain't Rights, who are going from small venue to small venue to very very small venue in their camper van and you know, nicking petrol and stuff like that to keep on the road, take a gig in a um a neo-nazi well it's not really like a nightclub is it it's just like a, a warehouse backwards. a backwoods warehouse basically it's kind of or like a backwoods club isn't it it's um 
and but it is it is neo Nazis. It's uh, as the as the guy who interviews them at the beginning and sets them up with the gig says it's um, it's the Belts and Braces Brigade yeah. or something like that. Has that great line? Was that great line? Is uh, yeah. yeah, they're kind of uh, yeah far right, but well, technically off the left, but they're not affiliated, um, which is just one of the great an example of the great bits of dialogue in this film anyway they see something that they shouldn't see in this club and have to have to barricade themselves inside the green room which is the kind of uh, the artist room where artists hang out before going on stage and it's where you drink your beer and stuff like that and they try to not get killed by these neo-nazis who are outside who really want to do them a disservice and, and are led by the wonderful Patrick Stewart as Darcy, I think that's his name, isn't it? Darcy, Mr. Darcy, Mr. Darcy. <laughs> yes, he's, uh, he doesn't come out of a lake at any point, but uh, but yes, he is. Um, he does command a huge amount of respect um, from the meatheads who follow him. It's by Jeremy Saulnier, who did Blue Ruin. Blue Ruin was also a great movie. This is yeah, it's interesting when you say that this film is more mainstream than Blue Ruin because this is a film that has moments of violence in it that are brief but absolutely toe-curlingly kind of, specific <laughs> yes and jump out of your seat shocking and there's one moment where it's almost over before you realise what you've seen but then when you realise what you've seen which is now just cut away from you, I just almost left my seat it was ah. such a shocker and again it's one of those where it's very very intimate violence it's kind of it's knife point violence or it's um, you know, box cutter violence and stuff like that it's but knives, there's a, and knives and Dogs. It's Knives and Dogs, that's right. I think that's actually a line in it. Knives and... Yes, yes. Yeah, it no might no be guns, a, just Knives, knives and, and dogs. dogs. Yeah. Like all the great single location films, it seems to write itself into a corner very, very early on. And it's like, well, where do you go from here? And the imagination that it has in, in where it takes the characters in terms of escape attempts and yeah, them trying to deal with their situation, I just thought was absolutely riveting and really, really smart. And... On a second viewing, I actually got more of the subplots of amongst the skinheads. There's a lot of stuff going on with the skinheads that I missed on the first viewing. One, because a lot of the... It has quite naturally recorded dialogue, so you can miss quite a lot of it. Um, and Plus, there's just so much going on anyway that I think that you have to watch it again to get everything on a second viewing. Um, there are parts of it that are... And I mean this, I mean this in the best possible sense. Borderline unwatchable. Yeah, in terms of just being, you know, utterly pinned in your seat. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. There are some moments of tension that are, yeah, that are up there with um, Hitchcock or Spielberg or John Carpenter and that kind of just that real. You literally don't know where the threat's going to come from, but you know there is going to be a threat coming from somewhere really quite soon. But ironically, even it's by the guy who did Blue Ruin, and Blue Ruin I thought was a great film. This is even though it does have those moments that are unwatchable. This is more like a mainstream film, I think. I think the... It's more... Oh yeah, and the, the whole thriller aspect does make it give it that sort of more commercial edge. And it has quite commercial denouement. Again, not to spoil anything, but there is a a crowd-pleasing element to the to the climax of this film. But then actually quite a nice epilogue that, that brings it back to, uh, to the general tone of this film. It's uncompromising, I think, <laughs> in many ways. And has got really, really great performances from Anton Yelchin, um, who is the, not the leader of the band, is he? But he becomes the de facto kind of leader of this group, although he'd really rather not be. Joe Cole? 
Joe Great Cole. actor. Yep. Uh, Imogen Poots. Imogen Poots is a very uh, good. Alice list. Shawcat, best known from Arrested Development. Yeah, she's all forever maybe in Arrested Development. Imogen Poots actually was really good in this film, and it took me about half hour to re uh, to recognise that it was actually Imogen Poots. So I just did not recognise her. And um, uh, it's got um, uh, so the, the, the Jeremy Saunier's uh, pre- a previous lead actor, uh, friend, and muse, Macon Blair. Yes, indeed who was in Blue Ruin and is very, very good here. And Sir Patrick Stewart, of course, uh, who is really, really good and really scary. Yeah, he has some quite horrible lines of dialogue in this film. Yeah, so Green Room, again, it's a single location film that is absolutely fantastic. So another single location film, because <laughs> this seems to be a bit of a recurring motif now, is The Witch. Yes, which you've now seen? Yes, yeah, I, I watched it the same day that I saw Ten Cloverfield Lane. Oh, wow, that's, that's a great double bill. Now, The Witch, for me, is currently my film of the year. Ah. But where do you stand on The Witch? Uh, po- probably top ten. But yes, I really enjoyed The Witch. I didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't adore it in the same way that I adored, say, um, It Follows. Mm-hmm. Though I think Which is a good comparison. The sense of spiritual dread that pervades it is is amazing. So the witch, for those who don't know, is a it's a New England fairy tale or New England folk tale. I think is the is the subheading of the film. Um, it's about a a family um, a puritanic from a from a very puritanical village or town um, who are banished for the sin of pride. Uh, the father has the sin of well is accused of having the sin of pride and has to take his family out into the wilderness to set up a new homestead and they find a place in New England in a field next to some really quite terrifying woods and build a house have a small farm and then one day uh, the baby so the eldest daughter is playing peekaboo with a baby and then when she takes her hands away the baby is gone and you don't know where the baby's gone and this is this sets off a chain of events that really threatens the family unit in terms of what's happened here is this black magic is it a religious hysteria is it the superstition that these people live with is it corrupting their minds and they are going to do things that are we're going to harm themselves and harm each other and there's a nice frisson of tension throughout the film for me in terms of what's actually going on aided by i thought some absolutely fantastic performances uh so the ralph innocent yes is uh, yeah, forever Finchy from The Office. Um, oh, he plays the father, William. Plays the father, um, and it's Kate, Kate Dickey. Dickey from Game of Thrones is is the wife, and she does have that great old Pinched. looking face, kind of like yeah, she has the look of uh, of someone who could have lived in the seventeenth century. Um, she looks puritanical. She does, yeah. She looks, and they all look slightly underfed and slightly. Like they could do with a good meal, they they have enough to survive, but not enough to be healthy. But for me, it was the kids. Uh, so Anna Taylor Joy is the is the daughter. Um, she's the eldest daughter, and Harvey Scrimshaw, um, who's Caleb, who's I think he's, which is also about, a perfect name for a for a child playing that role. Harvey Scrimshaw. Yeah. yeah. Harvey Scrimshaw. I know, it really is. It's a, there is a certain dark magic to that name, and so he's. Because again, it's it, you know, like all the great horror films, um, particularly great horror films about witchcraft, 
sexuality plays a large part of it, and this burgeoning sexuality of of the of the daughter and and the son. So the daughter is about seventeen and is kind of uh, is looking like a woman. The son is about thirteen and is beginning to think in terms of sexual terms, but his sister is the most sexual person that is around. And there's this whole thing about you can see his guilt of like of you know, of stealing a, a glance at her against the backdrop of everything else that's happening means that it just adds to this real level of hysteria and fevered fear that just goes throughout the whole film I thought it was absolutely fantastic and the film definitely it probably beats out The Revenant in terms of the fuck nature stakes yes it does I mean yeah that's right yeah so The Revenant was it was cold and it was filmed in yeah and it, they and went to the bear. ends of the earth and there was a bear but the witch is like this is it's just set in a field next to some pretty pretty scary woods but it's uh, but yeah it is it is the most terrifying place on earth it actually also is a a big debt to The Shining as well, I think, in terms of um, yeah, the family going out to the middle of nowhere and then a madness that may or may not be supernatural taking over them. The young kids as well are great. So Ellie Granger as Mercy and Lucas Dawson as Jonas. They're these two little rapscallions who <laughs> just go around getting on each other's on on everyone's nerves and uh, and children dressed in, well, especially children that meant to be identical, or you know, twins dressed in that fashion are inherently terrifying. Yes, indeed. That kind of, uh, that New England Salem's witch trial kind of um, fashion of the, what are they the called? Covered like, heads. But the covered heads with like a bodice on it. No, it's on bodice. Anyway, a bonnet thing, whatever it is. The very formal looking clothes and you know, ankle length skirts and things like that. Running around, holding hands, laughing and singing. <laughs> it's just absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and a film from, a first film from Robert Eggers, who... As you know, as debuts go, it's kind of it's one of the great debuts, I think. Yeah, that was a, a very good moment with a raven as well, which made everyone gasp when I saw it at the cinema. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> um, yeah. There's a Kate Kate Dickey seems to have interest in this. Yeah, there's, there's a there's a recurring mania, mania that she yeah, has uh, because her character in Game of Thrones also had this weird mania as well. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes, we won't spoil it, but it is. You'll know what we mean when you see it, and you should see it. It's, uh, in my humble opinion, best film of the year. So I've had good. It could be time for another bad. Yes, let's... Oh, what do you think? Um, I'm going to go for... Okay, just get it out of the way. I'm going to go for The Assassin, which you haven't seen yet, have you? I have not. And you miss... I think you miss nothing, and I literally cannot understand the love that the critical fraternity has for this movie I mean this film won the best film of the year in the sight and sound poll last year my god this mm. film is embalmed um, cinematic night nurse it's proof that you can that you can make a film that ostensibly is in the same genre as Crouch and Tiger Hidden Dragon or Ashes of Time or Hero and you can actually fall asleep during it. So it's, it's by director Hao Saoxian, who just seems to make films that will just play the critical circuit and will just play the festival circuit, and then they get a release and just largely met with indifference because, I'm sorry, at the end of the day, I just do not find him interesting as a director. So it's set in, in the 9th century, in uh, the Tang Dynasty. It's about a young female assassin played by Shu Qi, um, who has made like a career for herself as uh, as one of the B-movie starlets of Hong Kong cinema. And she has to kill 
a man to whom she was once betrothed and there's lots of uh, political machinations in there as well and there's very little action in there and there's a lot of wallpaper in this film there's there's a lot of tapestry and a lot of costumes in this film and and some of it looks really nice Hmm. but ultimately it's just embalmed I mean it just moves there is no pace to this film and also it's it goes out of its way to be opaque in terms of the story I think that the that the director's kind of said like your story has no interest for me it's like well then make a documentary about the Tang Dynasty if you're so fascinated by the trappings of the Tang Dynasty and I'm sure yeah, there's they're a lot of interest not, to trappings go they're very nice as trappings go they're very nice then just make a documentary they, they about haven't it, trapped anything because here it's like because you're not getting because I'm not getting anything about the Tang Dynasty from this because you're not explaining why all these things are so important in terms of the tapestry in terms of the the particular weave of this carpet my god I just uh, yeah and this is a a genre that I love I love um, it's called wuxia uh, and kind of means like a martial arts swordplay film and yeah I love these films and it's like I'm sorry but you have made a film that is is taking out all the action and then kind of like you know, dares you to say that it's not very good and it's and it's I'm thinking now oh, you are not as good as Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon you're not as good as Ashes of Time adding action to these films doesn't make them it doesn't dilute it doesn't dilute their greatness it actually makes their greatness even greater because that's the whole point of these films anyway um, yeah so I've already talked way too long about this film but The Assassin ugh, let's just say that I had to be nudged awake by the person that I was that I went to see it with because I was starting to do some very deep breathing as I went deeper and deeper <laughs> into sleep and was on the verge of snoring so that's The Assassin I wouldn't recommend you watch it anytime soon. What would you like to? Um, <laughs> it, on my on my good list, potentially top ten, uh, but a film about which I have very mixed feelings is the Neon Demon, ah. which I saw on Saturday. A film that I'm very much looking forward to, but have yet to see. Uh, we, you and I had very mixed feel, very opposing feelings about Only God Forgives. Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was tosh. <laughs> and uh, the Neon Demon. It follows uh, the character of Jesse, who's played by uh, Elle Fanning, who's this young, ingenue, aspiring model who arrives in Los Angeles, and immediately everybody is drawn to her. You know, they, she, they, you know, even among extraordinarily beautiful people, she possesses that certain something that sets her apart. And the film is really a—it's a very glossy, lurid study of you know what beauty is and what it elicits from us and the film reminded me strangely a lot of um, the um, Jonathan Glazer film from a couple of years ago Under the Skin which starred Scarlett Johansson was was another look at sort of you know again sexuality and what it means to be human and uh, and And in an interesting way that was a film that I thought I like Under the Skin a lot but I thought the first hour was much better than the final 40 minutes this film has that to the same I mean this film yeah if that's under the skin this is skin right in the, <laughs> and there's also there's also a degree of um, I'd say sort of David Cronenberg's crash to it it's all lofty praise indeed because, because it looks at the human body in, in that say in that sort of objectified almost you know compartmentalised fashion yeah and it's incredibly sort of well, surprisingly, I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, low key might be the wrong word, but very sleek and very, you know, and very fluidly moving. 
until it turns into a piece of piss. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, in the in the final act, all this you know very buried, all the subtext sort of rises up and everything else around it falls apart until you're so, you're you're left with the same you know detached symbolism that I thought made Only God Forgives so unwatchable. Ah, uh, I see. I am really interested to see this because, uh, as regular listeners will know, Rob and I frequently park our cars in the same garage when it, <laughs> when it comes to film. That could be do taken we, any do number we, of do ways. Do we stay with the cars? Do, do we, we stay with the cars? Um, it's a, that's a line that I've just nicked from True Romance. <laughs> Yeah, so we often agree about stuff, um, and uh, this could be one that we don't agree on because I, I thought that only God forgives was great. I thought it was um, it was a follow up to Drive, and it was very very contrary in terms of yeah. Ryan Gosling was suddenly a guy who couldn't ever win a fight, having been the best fighter in the world in Drive, and the guilt at what his family he had the most monstrous family. His brother and his mother were monsters, and from and it seems to be from his guilt that he uh, creates this incredibly terrifying policeman who does what he can and goes round you know, dishing out pretty strong universal judgment on people. I really got on with that. I thought it was a really really good film, but there's it's a film that yeah, it's a real marmite movie. It has split people down the middle. It's one of those movies that when you talk about it makes me consider watching it again. Oh, thank you very much. Um, but then you watch it and go, no, he's wrong. Um, that, that, that may well be the case. Yeah, it, it was a film that I thought took everything I liked about Drive and tried to amp it up to 11 by going, yeah, you like Ryan Gosling, you know, and, you know, being stoic under neon lights. He's going to sit here under this red lamp for 20 minutes and stare at his fists in silence. See, it wasn't twenty minutes. And also, I thought it it did things. It was the inverse of Drive. It was um, so Drive is actually quite an expansive film. A lot of it is set during LA daytime. I, I thought it was in many ways the inverse of Drive. Yeah, well, in the, in the, in the, it wasn't very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this was like yeah, very. It was very very claustrophobic. It was it was yeah. Drive was quite light. Only God forgives was very very dark. It was yeah neon. There wasn't really much natural light to that film. Uh, and again, it's, yeah, it, it just seemed to be like a, a warped mirror image of Nicholas Winding Refn's biggest hit to date. So I'm really interested in seeing the Neon Bible. Um, uh, the Neon Bible, that's a terrible film. Um, the Neon Demon. So yeah, when it comes out, I think there is a podcast with this name on it. Um, I would agree with that. I just want to do a couple of anime, because I think it's been, there have been two very, really interesting anime this year. One of which I think had just yeah, passed everybody by... And the other one of which I think will have had more, certainly more press, because it could be the final film from Studio Ghibli. Uh, so Studio Ghibli, the you know, Japanese powerhouse animation studio who did My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and just you know, many, many wonderful films. Um, and that's When Marnie Was There. So When Marnie Was There is a, it's actually based on a young adult novel from 1967. And Studio Ghibli often do this. They'll take English classics and give them like a weird anime or like a very imaginative anime spin. So they did it with um, with the Borrowers in the film Arietti. They did it in Howl's Moving Castle. But yeah, so when Marnie was there, uh, it was based on, on an English novel. And I am going to have a quick look to see who wrote it, sorry. So Joan G. Robinson. And yeah, it was written in 19... I probably used to be in gangster films, right? Yeah. 
Yes, indeed. Joan's brother, Edward, went off to the States to, uh, to earn his fortune. Uh, directed by Hiramasa Yonabayashi, who had previously done a... Yeah, he did Arietti. So he had form in adapting classic English children's books for Studio Ghibli. This one is um, actually quite a dark story. It's about this girl who is self-loathing, this girl called Anna. She's around 15 years old, is going through like a period of yeah, basically depression, has to go and live with some relatives in the country and makes friends with this girl called Marnie, And but there is something slightly odd about Marnie. She's this mysterious girl who lives in a very peculiar mansion. And there's lots of mystery to the film in terms of, of who Marnie is, and it plays out as a very, very good kids' film, but it's also one of the... It's a great Studio Ghibli film in terms of they can just do nature very well. They do films about people going back to nature or going to the countryside and being rejuvenated by by leaving the city. That's one of their motifs, and this uh, yeah, this film, I thought, did that really, really well. I've been reading that it has like a lesbian subtext to it, but uh, which I think is there. It's like a take it or leave it, but it's but again that's. Uh, well, I'm not entirely sure that that was the, but it it can be read in that way as like the burgeoning sexuality of uh, one of the characters. But I think at the end there's actually something that pretty much puts a full stop on that. But it's um, which is not to say that there's any agenda to the film. I just don't think. I just think that's something that's been read into it. And you've probably heard of that one, but um, the other film, just very quickly, is Miss Hokusai. And Miss Hokusai is kind of a biopic about the artist Tetsuzo, who was a very, very famous painter. And he painted The Great Wave of Kanagawa. Do you know that? Yes. That one? That's, yeah, the, one of the big blue wave and the little fishing of Kanagawa. ships. Of Kanagawa. It's been on lots of uh, yeah, student bedroom walls and things like that. Anyway, the film is based on a comic that suggested that um, his daughter, Oe, was a very large creative influence in his life and actually might have helped him a lot more than you know, history has given her credit for in terms of creating some of his masterworks. And this film is, I just thought, was absolutely fantastic. It's, um, it's a film about creativity that you really get a sense of how wonderful it can be to create something and also how frustrating it, it can be to create something which will lead on to a film we're going to talk about later in the bad thing, in the bad list of films which doesn't do any of those things um, it's also a really good period film about Tokyo during the 1800s and through these vignettes uh, some of which are supernatural some of which are very mundane you get a real sense of, of this woman and her quite fractious relationship with her father as they both produce these amazing works of art um, and her frustration at her dad who just seems to you know, toss off these masterpieces but isn't really bothered about getting paid for it and he gets paid for it but he keeps losing the money and all this kind of stuff and it's just a really nice got thrown out the museum once you're doing that for tossing off masterpieces <laughs> tossing off masterpieces <laughs> he's had a drink ladies and gentlemen he's had a drink <laughs> would you like to share the uh, what was the particular masterpiece that um, <laughs> it was the great wave of Kadagawa and I'll tell you it was a great wave <laughs> <laughs> It's all getting cut. It's all getting. It's cut. all staying in. <laughs> so yeah, so so Miss Hokusai is out to buy now on DVD and Blu-ray, and I, it's yes, it is a warmly recommended movie. I didn't say either of those. Uh, I do feel was feeling particularly guilty about um, when Marnie was there. But in which note shall we briefly touch upon films that we may have missed this year? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so 
to continue with the animation theme, I still haven't seen Zootopia. Nor I. Which I hear is... Well, actually, it sounds awesome. It's, it's a like a buddy cop movie for kids. I've had it described to me as Chinatown as a kid's film. Chinatown as a kid's film. How have we not seen this film? I know. It's insane that we haven't seen this film. Well, I, I've got a holiday coming up soon, so I'm going to go to an afternoon screening of this. I'm sure it's still on somewhere, because apparently Zootopia is absolutely fantastic. We've mentioned D-Pan, which was on when we saw Victoria. Ultimately, I think we made the wrong choice to go and see yes, Victoria. Yes, possibly. Because D-Pan did win the Palm d'Or that year and is by the director of... Is it Rust and Bone? He did that one, didn't he, I think? Yeah. Um, he also did another one earlier than that. I can't remember what that one was. Anyway, he's a good director and the film apparently is like a five-star movie. What else is on your list of the shameful misses? Uh, Jungle Book. Jungle Book, yes, I need to see that. That's Everyone's loved that. And what else? Um, I think those are two of the main ones. One of the films a couple of years ago that I really wished I'd seen at the cinema was Pride. And again, everyone has said it was great. And I knew that I was going to like it. And it seemed to be in that same vein as uh, Brassed Off, which was, you know, was a film I thought was great. And I finally got around to watching Pride on Sky Movies and thought, wow, that was, that was a really, really lovely film. And I kind of wish I'd seen that with an audience. A film that could be along those lines in just in terms of the collective feel-good is Eddie the Eagle which yes, another. I really want to see and I hear is absolutely lovely so yeah there have been a few films that I've not yet seen yeah so looking at my list so far there's roughly somewhere in the region of 50 films the, the thought the, the fact that is a fact is that there are enough interesting films coming out at the moment that you know even discounting the ones that we saw that weren't very good you can go and see easily go and see 60 films in the <laughs> cinema in the space of six months and not still not have seen everything that's possibly worth seeing yeah and actually kind of and not have seen two Zootopia and Deep that will probably make top ten of the year contenders maybe even Eddie the Eagle as well and Jungle Book anyway do we need to see well moving quickly on to the bad what's a bad on your one um, avoiding the obvious, uh, Angry Birds. No, that was that's pretty obvious. That was always obviously going to be bad. It's a film that exists. Uh, that was obviously <laughs> better or worse. That worse. was obviously put into production a couple of, a few years ago when Angry Birds was still a relevant cultural phenomenon. <laughs> and I think that's a poster quote. <laughs> Would have been good a couple of years ago when it was a relevant cultural phenomenon. <laughs> And it's full of just the laziest, lowest common denominator. It's got puns, people. And as you know, as you know from this podcast, we hate puns. <laughs> oh, we hate puns so much. Um, I, they don't give me oxygen at all. <laughs> um, I love my puns. Um, and there's there's literally, I mean, it's got a celebrity voice cast. You know, Jason Sudeikis and I think Sean te- te- technically Sean Penn, though his character is more or less mute. Um, Jesus, and there's one joke in it that's really funny because it's utterly tonally inconsistent with mm. the rest of the film. <laughs> you suddenly go, "That's a, it's quite grown up." We've just been having pig puns for the last uh, forty-five minutes, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, watch that. Watch you know, I don't know, maybe watch fifteen minutes of it on YouTube so you can get the five minutes leading in. Hmm. the ten minutes leading into the joke so you can build up what the film is like and then watch that joke and it's a lot presumably a lot funnier because you go that came out of nowhere <laughs> um, also bad um, 
shall we? Let's let's not go there yet. Knight of Cups. Knight of Cups. Well, quickly, before we do Knight of Cups, because I don't want to give too much time to Dirty Grandpa. Um, yeah, Dirty Grandpa. So Dirty Grandpa, Robert De Niro and Zac Efron go on a road trip. De Niro is a particularly obscene grandpa who seems to be you know, wanting to it's basically like a really crude horrible version of Scent of a Woman um, <laughs> where it is where he kind of like this old guy takes a young guy on like a, a week, you know, a wild weekend so he can so the young guy can see what really matters in his life but all I could take from Dirty Grandpa was that Robert De Niro, presumably as a young man, had been forced into acting by his parents and actually hated acting and, and has hated movies all along and now just wants to shit all over his legacy. And he does it in a quite spectacular way in Dirty Grandpa. He takes a absolute crop-spraying ocean of shit and just splashes it all over his career. It's a, was it, you? It, it was definitely you said this. is like, when is it that De Niro's current films are going to start cancelling out his classic films so does Dirty Grandpa mean that Taxi Driver is now erased from existence I know he already did that with Rocky and Bullwinkle Rocky and Bullwinkle yes he did he did because he actually referenced that didn't he so there is no Taxi Driver anymore because of this King of Comedy has he just so Dirty no no I think this is actually um, Dirty Grandpa has erased Raging Bull because Dirty Grandpa is Raging Bullshit and so Raging Bull can't exist anymore Um, yeah just one by one he's just He's just you know wiping it all away. I just Robert De Niro hates films, and he hates his own films, and that's why he wants to destroy his legacy. Dirty Grandpa, fucking shit. <laughs> um, anyway, so <laughs> just had to get it off my chest, really, because I watched the entire thing, and it was unrated, so it was longer. Knight of Cups. Yes, moving from <laughs> shit to wank. From shit to wank, indeed. Oh, Knight of Cups. So. Rob saw Knight of Cups a few months ago, I think it was, and has been talking about it in a way that he actually did quite accurately convey just the mind-numbing pretension and tedium of the film. And I watched it last night thinking, either it's going to be good to talk about how awful this film is, or it will be good to get some friss on in there, because I might like it, and it might actually be one of my top ten of the year contenders, and will that be interesting? Unfortunately, that isn't the case. It's awful. Rob was right. My God, Terence Malick is just... Go on. <laughs> it's not a film, it's an art exhibit. It is something that is meant to be played in the background as people wander around like a white room staring at the walls. Not that there need necessarily be anything on the walls. Um, Christian Bale plays this listless screenwriter who wanders... Through you know through through Los Angeles from party to party and up to the financial district and you know to the Paramount back lot and along Skid Row and is consumed with this sense of you know existent or with or with ennui and he encounters ennui. people that you'll recognise from other films some of whom don't have any lines like Jason Clark uh, of, has no of, lines. of uh, Rise of the Planet Dawn Dawn of the Dawn Planet of the Apes. And Terminator Genesis. Genesis, yes. So another... He's a good actor, but sometimes, I mean... Well, I'm trying to the apes, but... Yeah, Terminator was awful. Um, and it's kind of told through... Well, the Knight of Cups, it's... Uh, um, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, and it's... Um, and I think it's like a... Tar- it's also with a tarot as well, isn't it? And I think if the knight is is uh, presented the right way up, then it's 
it suggests that you will go on a, a journey, an exciting journey, and there will be romance to that journey. And if the so night is much romance, and if the night is presented upside down, then it means that there will be a you know, rocky journey, and it will be um, beset with falsehoods and you know, betrayal and lots of bad things. And ultimately, it, I felt betrayed and um, and lied to by the end of the film. So this was a film in which the projector was definitely upside down when it came to the night. Um, Jesus, it's. And it's told through the women in his life, isn't it? So there's Imogen Poots again. Uh, and I think Imogen Poots is a yeah, is a good actress. Natalie Portman is another one of the actresses. She's a good actress. Yeah, Kate Blanchett is a great actress. But this was a film that was improvised. There was no real script for this film. It was all just improv. And it's like, well, that's so dangerous because great actors do not necessarily become immediately good improvisers. Yeah, there's you know, Rob Williams and Keitel and uh, De Niro in the in Mean Streets, you know, a lot of improvisation there, but a lot of actors just need a script, they need a character. And Christian Bale was saying that he was never given any dialogue, there was there was never any, any script notes or... Um, they just put people in rooms, to, in, not even always in spaces together. Spaces, yeah. I mean, apparently the women would have lines of dialogue to say, to try and guide some of the uh, scenes through the improv. Oh yeah, because they were... Christian to... Bale would try and look at these things to see what his character is supposed to be, it's like... For because all the women are utterly symbolic. Yeah. Um, what they're symbolic of is open to interpretation because it could just be that they're open... They are yeah, symbolic of uh, Terence Malick's love of pretty waifs in a diaphanous dress twirling at magic hour. I mean, there's... Uh, I could have done with some more twirling in this, actually, because this was very much like To the Wonder, which was his previous film that had Olga Kurilenko in it and Ben Affleck, wasn't it? And she did lots of twirling at Magic Hour in a diaphanous dress. And this one was more of a moping film, wasn't it? It was a Christian Bale moping around in a in a cotton suit and or like a linen suit and whatever. Oh god, I hated it. <laughs> yes, it's Natalie Portman in particular out of it, the act, you know, is an incredibly presumably an incredibly intelligent human being. She went to Harvard, she's got a degree in psychology. Best actress Oscar. She's got a best actress Oscar. I don't understand I mean I guess is it just there's the same reason this film got made at all the opportunity to work with Terence Malick yeah I think that people think still keep thinking even though presumably they are watching his films now although I thought The Tree of Life was a was a good film with a great film trying to get out of it but um, I, I thought Tree of Life was great I really yeah I absolutely I, it's I, I dragged my sister along to see it, uh-huh. and about 20 minutes into the universe expanding, I, I dragged my sister along to see it on the promise that it had Brad Pitt in it, which, <laughs> in all fairness, I did not like. There's a lot of Brad Pitt in it. But about 20 minutes into the universe expanding, my sister just turns to me and goes, I hate you so much. <laughs> and I could see why she'd say it during that And moment. I deserved it. And <laughs> So I can only imagine what, how it would have been if I dragged her along to Knight of Cups. Knight of Cups saying, it's got Christian Bale in it, you like Christian Bale? Like yeah, I don't like Christian Bale just standing there, doing nothing. Or because I was, I was like you, I thought this is a film that should really have just been an art installation. It should have been just yeah, projected on a wall so people can watch it for a few minutes and then go off and yeah, look at something else. Go off and live their life. Go off and live their life. There is actually a scene in this film where they go to an art gallery and you watch them look at pieces of art, and it's like, oh, to what end? To what end is any of this happening? I'm sorry, but. 
the philosophy in this film is completely subsumed to any kind of not just story but any any yeah, narrative point and if the, and if the point is terry that can i call you that life is meaningless and that this search for meaning is ultimately meaningless by presenting it you are making a film that is meaningless utterly like, meaningless the search for meaning is only interesting insofar as meaning is derived or at least there's some dramatic incident en route neither of those things you get to the end of the film and you know, literally it is a hollow experience and you feel worse for having seen it which is interesting because Tree of Life does have some moments of real there are some incredibly sublime moments in that film I mean, but this has lines in it like there's an Imogen Poots line you don't want love you want a love experience and it's like oh fuck off with this a-level dirge this he is an old man and he is a clever man and he is a you know a philosopher why does so much of tree of um of night of cups just seem like the the really tiresome poetry from a 16 year old who's just been dumped for the first time it just oh yeah it was rubbish and the thing is, I think that people or that these famous actors think, well, maybe this one will be the Thin Red Line again. Like, yeah, maybe this one will. Because I think that's a great movie. Um, but the Thin Red Line, you're assuming they had a script for? They definitely had a script for it. Um, well, they had a very, very big script for it because it lots of actors were in it who were then cut out of it. Uh, was it Gary Oldman who got on a plane and by the time he got off the plane, his character had been <laughs> out? <laughs> it was. Another uh, thing, this, you know, the Thin Red Line. And Badlands, and yeah, even Tree of Life. Through Tree of Life has a has a family drama at the centre of it. Mm. This has nothing at the centre no. of it. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those films where I was watching it, and I just kept having to reach for my phone to check email and stuff like that. Thinking, no, 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 come on, it's, it's a really important film. You you have to watch this, and let's see what he's doing here. And then I would you know, watch it for three or four minutes and it's like I'm sorry but this is just mind-numbingly tedious there is nothing going on in this I, film I had the thing where I was trying to focus and your eyes start crossing yeah it is. and you just and your mind wanders and it's like have I, got, have I got time to go to Tesco before it shuts after this so I can get some dinner or what, what do I fancy tonight someone get fish um, ooh, oh, I oh no right uh, now it's fine in, she's still twirling she's still twirling and he's in an art gallery now oh no no actually he's on Skid Row and that really really pissed me off as well all these actors these millionaires kind of getting all uh, real with either real homeless people or or homeless people who were burn victims or something there, yeah, there seemed to be lots of people on Skid Row who had awful lives and they were suddenly being treated by Kate Blanchett who was pretending to be a nurse and or Christian Bale, or yeah, Imogen Poots kind of puts a, a flower on a sleeping homeless person, and it's like, oh, you got paid so much money for this film, and just watching millionaires pretend to, I oh, know, yeah, to rub shoulders with the homeless on Skid Row, it's like, you can just fuck off with that. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but I have no time for it. So, moving on. <laughs> um, unless there's anything else you want to say about Night of Cups. No, I think we've I think we've said quite enough. I think we've said quite enough about Night of Cups. Well, I think that we should uh, go back to some of the good and look at some of the just so we're not always talking about the incredibly worthy films. Have there been any blockbusters this year that we've enjoyed? Um, well, Captain America: Civil War. Yep, was was great. Um, X Men Apocalypse was fine. X Men Apocalypse, yeah, that was. Um, I think we talked quite a lot about that on the last one. Um. I would say that Deadpool is a film that 
I liked. I didn't. It wasn't nearly as uh, subversive as I wanted it to be, but it has lingered in my memory as a an enjoyable experience. And I did actually buy the Blu-ray, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Yeah, for me, Deadpool is one half completely conventional superhero film, and the other half making fun of it. And one has to exist in order for the other to work. Yeah, I think that the balance could have been better. In it, it, it could have been cleverer. It could have been sharper. It. Yeah, it does rely on shit jokes and dick jokes, which and your regular listeners of the podcast will know. I love that shit. I think it's great. But it, there's, yeah, it could have been like a little bit sharper. Be interesting to see what they do with the sequel. But yeah, I did like Deadpool and Triple Nine. Did you see Triple? Nine? I did not see Triple Nine. Be interesting to see what you make of that because I thought that Triple Nine, Triple Nine was one of those films that I was just really in the mood for. It has an amazing cast. So there's Chiwetel Ejiofor. There's um, Kate Winslet. There's Woody Harrelson, there's Casey Affleck, there's Gal Gadot, there is Anthony Mackie in that film as well, yes, I so. and Norman Reedus from The Walking Dead, Je- Aaron Je- Paul, yeah. Forever Jesse from Breaking Bad, and and I'm sure there's at least one person that I'm missing. And yeah, it's a really good crime thriller, and opens with a absolutely fantastic heist, and then a very, very good car chase. But I thought it maintained itself as a as a real kind of hellish look at uh, a crime in LA. It was kind of like The Shield, kind of like James Elroy. But lots of people just didn't get on with that film. Lots of people said it was you know, disappointing, that it was a pale retread of Training Day. Yeah, it'd be interesting what you think because I I like that film, whereas but I'm, I think I'm in a bit of a minority in that. So uh, what? Uh, that's the thing. The, we haven't really entered blockbuster season yet this year. I mean, we were into the summer, but. Well, we have really. It's. I mean, we had. Um, so we've had. I mean, I'd say what are the other blockbusters that are still to come? Because we've had yeah, Jungle Book is out. Um, so we've got Star Trek and there's Ghostbusters and Independence Day. I suppose it's BFG as well. So yeah. It's, uh, but and Jason Bourne would you count that as a blockbuster? Yeah, 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 I would. Yeah. And well, yeah, and, and, uh, and Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. Doctor Strange. Well, that's coming out in uh, November time, isn't it? Oh yeah. Sorry. I mean, I mean, in terms of the. We're now entering the season, I think, where we're going to more, get more consistently get blockbusters leading up until Christmas. Maybe, yeah, because yeah, there's also the Magnificent Seven, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. And Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which is Tim Burton's new film. Burton doing Burton. Yeah, you're right. Well, I thought we were well into uh, into blockbuster season, but maybe we're not. It's, um, we've only had, yeah, we've had a relatively few. So there's been X-Men, and there's been Captain America, there's been Batman versus Superman mm. of course that was released um, we've made it so far without oh, we've made it we've been talking for an hour and 49 minutes might be a bit shorter when you're listening to this depending on, on how much we, we chop out I think that people know what we think of Batman versus Superman we though. had feelings we had feelings about that film and we will inevitably do a follow up podcast when they release the three hour cut which is a 12 again and I thought it was going to be a 15 because they said it was going to be a tougher cut but I think they've just included more narrative. There was I I read that the death of Jimmy Olsen was like a lot more graphic and You mean they're gonna actually name him as being Jimmy Olsen? I think they do, I think they do give him a name, yeah. Um Can we we I'm still doing the version of the podcast where we do a condensed version for just casual listing and another full version which is us talking as we're watching the film. And and at the point they announced Jimmy Olsen's name, I'm going to boo. I'm going to hold me to that. I'm hi, I'm Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> well, I think we should do that. that. That is a sneak peek. We will do 
almost an audio commentary of Batman versus Superman when it comes out on Blu-ray. Oh yeah, I have to buy that. And we'll also do like a a twenty-minute roundup of why the three-hour director's cut also stinks. Um, <laughs> it could be a masterpiece. Could be a masterpiece. Could be a masterpiece. We can but wait. Cool. So I think in terms of wrapping it up, it's. Uh, are there any other films? I'm just looking down my list of films that uh, we haven't talked about. Actually, we haven't talked about High Rise yet, which was a film that I thought was very, very clever, very exhilarating uh, piece of cinema. Kind of uh, reminded me of Nick Rogue at his prime and again proves that Ben Wheatley is possibly the most exciting British director still working in Britain. I, I really liked it. I prefer to feel in England. Interesting, because yeah. I... Go on. Because I thought the whole hallucinatory, associative style of editing... Uh, is uh, was uh, I thought the sort of black and white pagan feel of a field in England was a much more natural fit to that. Uh, although you know the sort of excessive excess and drug culture of high rise, well, yeah, work still works in that yeah. context. Um, and of course, I'm really looking forward to well, Ben Wheatley's new film. I think it's out this year. Might called Free Fire, I think which be next year. has which uh, is uh, Brie Larson, Killian Murphy. Uh, Michael Smiley. Yeah. I mean, there are other. Oh, um, oh, uh, Man from Uncle. Oh, Henry Cavill. Um, oh, no, the other one. Um, Army Hammer. Uh, Army Hammer. Ar- Army Hammer. Yeah. Um, and it's essentially, by what I've been told, the final shootout of a drug deal gone wrong, stretched into a to fill a, an entire feature length film. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a. It's the final act of a movie that is just the movie. Yes. Which could be really interesting. It could be... Because it kind of reminds me of this film, and I can never remember the name of it. It's, um, it stars... It, sorry, it stars Jim Caviezel and lots of other really interesting actors. Unknown. It is unknown. Yeah, it's, um, yeah so Jim Caviezel, Greg Kinnear, Barry Pepper, Jeremy Sisto, Peter Stormare... Stormare... It's like a Reservoir Dogs type story in that there are these uh, criminals in a warehouse and and the film opens up and they're all unconscious and they all come around at yeah, roughly the same time and they realise that something really bad has happened in terms of there is, there's been like a double cross but they don't know who they are or who each other is so they don't know if they're friends with the person next to them or if that's the person that double crossed them and they have to try and work out what's gone on and who they are and it's like it ends it's it's one of those where the idea is really really killer and uh, the execution ultimately is is good enough but it is it does have some great moments in there when they try to find out exactly who they are and who they can trust and who they were friends with before because they all have amnesia and this one just always just the, just the idea of it just reminds me of this film for some reason, even though it's not the same story at all. Anyway, it's yeah, Ben Wheatley, and I'm very much looking forward to it. <laughs> but yeah, High Rise, I thought, because I did like A Field in England, but I thought, because it didn't have to make any sense, ultimately it kind of let itself off the hook, And but with High Rise, I liked the fact that he... Because it, it's, it's a film about today as much as about the 70s, and in terms of the of the haves and the, and the have-nots and the want-mores, and... No matter what you get, it's never enough. And yeah, the high rise being a metaphor for society and and, that's and another, having to move up. Another Elizabeth Moss film, is that, yeah. And it's also, and you could say it's almost it's also like another yeah, single location film, even though there's lots of different locations within the high rise. Yeah, I thought that was really smart. 
Is there anything... Well, it's the nice guys, obviously. I think we both like that. Oh, we've covered that in some detail. <laughs> we've covered that in some uh, detail. Everybody Wants Some. Which I haven't seen yet. Really great um, new film by... Why has his name gone out of my head? Oh, Linklater, Richard Linklater. Uh, very much in the vein of Dazed and Confused. Sort of early, early mid-80s. Um, te- college in Texas. Guy turns up the first day. And it's literally a few days in the life of this guy as he gets ready to start his college life and it's very free spirited and freewheeling and just you know lots of lots of parties and lots of hanging out but you know it's essentially it is it does feel like hanging out with a bunch of people that you may not have been friends with at college <laughs> but that you're that you know really that you wish that you could be friends with now and is it a follow-up to Days and Confused? No, it's completely un... un oh, okay. Unrelated or, or, to that. Although there are sort of recurring character types. Yeah. There's one character played by... I, then his name escapes me, but I believe he is a relative of Kurt Russell. All right. And, and um, Wyatt Russell, that'll be the guy. And he's got a big bushy beard in this film, but as soon as the beard comes <laughs> off, you can see the the you, there's, there is a resemblance to Kurt. Oh, a little bit, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. And, uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he, I'm pretty sure that he gets an all right, all right in there at one point in, in <laughs> homage to the mighty McConaughey. Well, he is He's the, the son, son of Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Um, Kurt Russell's great. Kurt Russell, of course, was in The Hateful Eight. Right, <laughs> he was also in Bone Tomahawk, <clears throat> which is another contender for my top ten of the year. Again, it was in the winter of the Western, that first podcast we did. Uh, but um, it's also a really, really interesting Western and a really good horror film, and there's lots of great things going on in that film. And, yeah, so, again, it, yeah, just proof that we are living in a golden half-year of film. And, yeah, we've, we've completely... We haven't talked about Son of Saul. We haven't talked oh, yes. about Creed. Oh, Creed, yes. Well, it's, um, well, I think Creed might be a good one to end on. So, so Son of Saul, I, I mean, yeah. It's a impressive and singular film about the Holocaust and about the Zonda Commando, who were the inmates, the Jewish inmates of Auschwitz, who were disposed help, of yeah, dispose of the bodies of uh, of those who died in the gas chambers and had to yeah strip the bodies of their of their teeth and their hair, and it was just yeah absolutely absolutely nightmarish. And it's this uh, this one man who thinks he's found his son and wants to give him a proper burial and basically has to negotiate Auschwitz to uh, to try and find a rabbi who can do this and you see the, the apparatus of extermination through almost through his eyes because the uh, camera's always locked on him famously shot with very very shallow lenses which means it's only really the foreground that's in focus and the rest is out of focus yeah very impressive film one that we saw Half nine on a Friday morning at the LFF, and that was quite a strong way to start the day, wasn't it? Yeah, sort of going in with our casually with our coffees and our chit chat, <laughs> and then it was like, oh, let's let's just uh, focus on what's happening here because this is quite extraordinary and also incredibly disturbing. But yeah, that was a a fantastic film. We haven't really talked about the Revenant, which is a well, we talked about that on the. Uh, on the first podcast, didn't we? Um, and is a film that I liked more than you, ultimately. <laughs> so Creed. If Creed doesn't get in, in my top ten, then this has been a very good year for film, because it means that there are films better than Creed, and I thought Creed was a real triumph. So the story of Creed, for those who don't know it, but I'm sure everyone does, is Apollo Creed's 
kind of illegitimate son. Um, not quite sure how the timeline works. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There really is a really odd timeline to that film, isn't there? It's um, you kind of just have to buy that it kind of works. <laughs> um, yeah. So the illegitimate son of Apollo Creed is adopted by Apollo Creed's wife, uh, grows up in a certain amount of comfort, but wants to become a boxer and against his mother's wishes and goes to Philadelphia to be trained by Rocky. And it's uh, Sylvester Stallone returning to you know the role that got him fame all those years ago, playing it as an old man. And yeah, I thought this was uh, a really clever updating of, of what Rocky means, um, of all the themes that have been in all the Rocky films. Real passing of the torch. Passing of the torch. And, and, the, and also in, just in terms of this story being relevant no matter what the generation, because it's been almost two generations since Rocky was released, and this is in a way a remake of the original Rocky, but it's just these universal themes that Stallone you know, tied into all those years ago, just still resonate now, even in an age of YouTube, when they're kind of, when they're watching the clips of YouTube, and yeah, Stallone as Rocky is just set in the 70s, and all this stuff has kind of passed him by, and, and time's beginning to catch up with him, and it's He's running his really little fair. restaurant and he goes and gets his chair and his newspaper and goes and, goes and sits by uh, Adrian and Paulie's graves. And... Which is a really nice touch, isn't it? That he has a chair, like a fold-away chair, that he keeps in a tree. The idea being that there's no point in taking it home because he's always going to go there, every day he's going to go there, but also no one else touches it because everyone kind of knows that that is Rocky's chair, so therefore you don't mess with Rocky's chair because he'll be here to read the paper aloud to Adrian and uh, to Paulie. And thinking just those small moments like that just have so much weight to them that it's in none of Knight of Cups. <laughs> just like you, talk, you talk about like kind of an insight into the human condition and, and into the in, into a sense of loss and acceptance and aging and of reflection and well, yeah, perspective. Creed fundamentally wants to tell a human story. Uh, Knight of Cups just loses itself in themes in this like huge thematic miasma. When the subtext becomes text, you're just left with, as you said, a thematic miasma, which is, which has actually given it way too much credence in terms of that's a really great way to describe it. It's not as interesting as that sounds, but yeah, Creed is, uh, and it just has really, really great performances as well from um, Michael B. Jordan, Jordan, yeah, who really should have been nominated for some kind of award at the Oscars. I mean, he should have been up for Best Supporting Actor, as well as Sylvester Stallone. And the director, help me out. Ryan, oh, Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler, who did Fruitvale Station. And is doing Black Panther. He is indeed. As is Michael B. Jordan. Yes, that's, yeah, that's right, yeah. He should have been up for Best Director. There were other directors well, who I were... Well, should have been up for Best Picture. Like, yes, it should have been. In fact, there were right. two slots that were left open that were not filled by Creed and Carol. Sadly, yeah. not, not in contention for the best of the first half of 2016, since I believe that was a December release. It was a December, um, yeah, late last year release, definitely. Yeah, Ryan Coogler should have been up for Best Director, but it, because of the, not just the boxing scenes, which are really, really fantastic, but the the scene when um, with Stallone, and I thought it was going to be the scene that got him the Oscar, of course it didn't, when he's talking about the acceptance of that he's almost near the end of his life, and talks about all the fighters on the war and all the posters all the aging posters of like of the fighters that are now long gone and this is basically what he is and and he's fine with that because his wife has gone and because all of his friends have gone and i just thought that's just just a really really moving scene really well directed and it just yeah lets the acting happen but then you get these really kinetic scenes 
of boxing, like like the first boxing match um, that Creed has, it's all done in one take. You really and, feel the punches, and you feel the kind of you feel the punches, you feel the speed of the fight, you feel just the kind of you know the danger of being in the boxing ring. And because uh, I'm not a huge fan of boxing, but it does make such a great cinematic spectacle, doesn't it? And it's such a great metaphor, anyway. And I thought, yeah, is that that was all done in one take because it's the kind of thing that you just assume now isn't done in one take that it's yeah, stitched together from yeah, six different takes but you know that they have purposely done that to say look we can still do this in one take and that was yeah, just a really reviewer piece of directing and it just has that really emotional it has four big emotional beats during the climactic fight which I won't spoil here that are that each you know that do sort of build to a, a knockout blow. They do because it is like yeah one yeah we'll talk about it in the end of year review because there are some people that still you might not have seen Creed so we'll give you a year to watch it but uh, but there are four climactic beats or yeah, big emotional beats that come one after another one on top of the other and it just builds up to this moment that it's like oh really I've got something in my eye now <laughs> and it's just fantastic so yeah so the fact that Mark Rylance got the best supporting actor for Bridge of Spies when I would argue that his performance was not as demanding as what Sylvester Stallone had to do for Creed. It just seemed to really not recognise achievement in that category for the year. And I was very, very disappointed that Stallone didn't get it. But anyway, we'll always have Creed. (laughs) So in terms of films coming up, just to round it off, big films that we're looking forward to that could be contenders for the top ten of the year? Uh, Well, um, Star Wars... Rogue One, I think that's the... Hopefully. Um, Suicide Do- Squad. Suicide Squad, we can, oh, but so hopefully. <laughs> but it's got a PG-13, isn't it? And didn't they say they were going to go all R-rated on it after Deadpool hit big? I know I'll get burnt, but I still am holding out for Suicide Squad because it still looks like it could it could rescue the DC superhero uh, franchises on the big screen. The small screen's doing very well. Popstar, the Andy Samberg Never film. Stop, Never Giving Up. No, never stop stopping, isn't it? Never stop. Oh, what is this? Is <laughs> never stop, never stopping. Never stop, never stopping. That's it. Yes. That's it. <laughs> well done. Never stop, never stopping. Looks good. There's the woods, which is by that by the guy who did the guest, um, Adam Wingard. Yeah, and I, I loved the guest. I thought yeah, the guest was great, wasn't it? He also did your next, which I thought was very good as well. Then there's things like, I mean, we have some, so there's Independence Day 2, there's Ghostbusters remake, there's Star Trek 3, there's Bourne. So there's all these films that are coming out that could either, it really is like, a okay, it's, it's a really, buffet. It's just chaos theories, like these could go either way and no one knows which way they're going to go. Uh, I think it's a buffet, but you don't know who's, like, you know, you've got, you vaguely know what to expect from each dish. But and it could be great. each independently could be great based on you you knowing the ingredients in there, or something should have gone horribly wrong with the cooking process. Um, but it's Finding Dory, which I'm looking forward to. Because Pixar and Finding Nemo was good. It's a David Brent film. We'll see how that goes. Magnificent Seven, I'm looking forward to. I I have no. Magnificent <laughs> Seven wasn't as big a film for me as as I as I think as I think it might have been for some. I, I sort of I only watched it you know sort of within the last six or seven years so and, and while I sort of appreciate it in terms of, uh, of an artefact at that time with some great star performances in it, it it's I'll be interested to see what they do with it 
Well, let me make a confession. I've never seen The Magnificent Seven. Well. I know. it's. Uh, I have seen Seven Samurai a number of times, but I've never seen The Magnificent Seven, and I really should have, because I really like Steve McQueen as an actor. I think he was great, and Robert Vaughn is in that film, yeah, and Yul Brynner. And Yul Wallach. Yep, indeed. It's all brilliant. It's on Netflix right now. I should be watching The Magnificent Seven at some point in the very near future. We also have Jack Reacher. <laughs> Jack Reacher is it never stop never stopping or something <laughs> there is a Jack Jack never Re- go back okay Jack Reacher never go back um, never go back to okay Jack Reacher returns to the headquarters of his own unit old unit only to find he's now accused of a 16 year old homicide yeah so we'll see what that's like that's got Robert Robert Nepper and Kobe Smulders in it but um, I'm not sure which of the books is based on if it's if it's based on a book or bits of books or something. But I like Jack Reacher. I thought the first one was very good, and I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, yeah, the colon is really interesting, so never go back. I think that you had quite a good idea that, that the next one, the colon, should just be round. Yeah. So Jack Reacher round. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting late, folks. <laughs> you have to forgive, forgive us. us. But we are looking forward. But I am looking forward to Jack Reacher films. I, I was talking for you as well. I don't know if you are or not, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, we will see what that's like. And then there's Doctor Strange and yeah, Star Wars. So, well, if they if they find a place in the new Jack Reacher to have um, Werner Herzog in it again, then I'll yeah, it needs to have a villain as good as Werner Herzog. In fact, who is the Jack Reacher villain? Because if it's could be Robert Nepper, he'll be he'll it be is Robert Nepper, yeah, because he's a general and it's called General Harkness, and you know that that sounds a bit like darkness. And uh, yeah, so Robert Nepper, best known for Prison Break, he's T-Bag. Ah, yes, he might be quite. Yes, he is. He is obviously going to be the baddie because he just has one of those faces that he could never be the goodie. Not in a big film like Jack Reacher, he'll be good actually. He's yeah, he's a slightly offbeat villain the same way that Werner was as well in uh, Jack Reacher. Why did they always choose the gun? I do not understand. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, so this has uh, been another epic podcast. Yeah, it's not quite as long as our previous one. Hopefully from this you've seen that one, we are in a good year so far for movies and uh, hopefully there is a, there's a few there that if you haven't seen them then you might want to see and if nothing else, if you avoid Night of Cups because of this podcast then we have done our job. <laughs> and we've saved you about two hours. So We have saved you about two hours. Yes, at only the cost of about two hours. At only the cost of two hours, but believe me... This is a much more entertaining two hours than Night of Cups. Night of Cups. Oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, ultimately a good year for film. Potentially a great one. Potentially a great one, which is a nice way to end. Cool. All right then. Well, until next time. This is Rob Daniel and Rob Wallace signing off and saying thank you very much. Thank you very much. Oh my